2: When you start to recognize that everything in your reality, everything in your world is here to show you, you, it like becomes so informational and autonomous in its information, right? And in, in its experience because we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. All
3: right, welcome everybody. We're back for another episode of Comeback Stories, and today's guest is. Danica Patrick. So Danica is one of the most successful and widely recognized athletes in the world and definitely the most successful female in the history of racing. She's a hero, a role model for women, young girls, and men all across the world. I know Danica was the first female to ever lead the Indy 500, first female to win an Indy car circuit race. She made the switch to stock cars and became the first woman to win the pole position at the Daytona 500 third in the Indy 500 in 2005, and in 2008, won the Indy Japan. And I know there's no other female that's come close to what Danica has accomplished in her racing career. She's also the author of Pretty Intense and the host of the Pretty Intense podcast. And honestly, these accolades really just scratch the surface of the depth of who I know Danica to be today. And I'm grateful to call her my friend. And I am excited for this conversation. So Danica, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thanks, guys. So we dive right always, in, we dive right funny in. That, it's always funny to hear your intro You're like, mm-hmm, okay, yeah, sometimes the intro gives you some perspective.
3: Yeah, and it's, it sounds funny saying it based on the relationship I have with you and who I know you to be. So, but we do, I guess, want to set the context, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> totally. So
3: we, we get right into it. Very first question we ask all of our guests is, can you tell us a little bit what it was like growing up for you?
2: I grew up really classic, sort of normal Midwestern. I grew up in Illinois. I was born in Wisconsin, but we lived like 1.8 miles from the border of Wisconsin. So that's where I was born because it was the closest hospital. But I grew up in Illinois, lots of cornfields, lots of bonfires in high school, lots of playing in the street and riding your bike when I was a kid. I remember there was a cornfield next to our neighborhood And there was this like grouping of trees and we called it the Island of Trees. And we would go with the babysitter out to the Island of Trees and bring a picnic. Um, You know, we'd go to uh, the pool uh, during summer break So for me, growing up was I felt very normal. In fact, I still feel very normal. But growing up was small town Midwestern life. Like mom and dad worked their butts off and my sister and I were held to a high standard and kind of always. So um, yeah, I mean, just growing up in general, though, seems like it was pretty normal. But then again, I don't know another way. So it's like when someone asks me, what was it like to be a girl in racing? I'm like, what was it like to be a guy? You know, I don't have that perspective. So when, you know, you ask what my childhood was like, most of the time, I think a lot of people are going to say there was some normalcy to it.
3: Was there any struggle? Can you share with us? Can you remember any struggle or an early memory of pain that you had?
2: Well, My dad was tough on me for sure. I mean, racing starting at 10 years old, my dad was pretty hard on me. So, you know, I remember getting yelled at and things like that. I think it's a little weird that I don't remember a ton before I was 10. Like I remember pictures, like you know how your memory just serves like a picture. I kind of remember pictures of childhood generally, but I don't remember like doing anything. I don't really remember childhood. And my sister has three kids now. They're like, seven, five and one and it would shock me if they didn't have some memories from what was going on right now. So as I told my therapist that and she was like, you know, I told her that a couple of times. She's like, you know, we can dive into that childhood stuff if you want. I'm like, probably should at some point. <laughs> but I guess, you know, the the, the the struggles were just because I started racing so early and was pushed so early. And yeah, so you know, my parents worked their butts off. So other than that There was a lot of luxury too. I mean, I had lots of new things every year. My parents did well, they took care of my sister and I very well. We got to do a lot of fun things, you know, we went racing and we had a lot. So there was a lot of good things too. But those were sort of the strife sort of things.
3: It's interesting that you talk about not remembering anything from like 10 years old on. I had this conversation with my mom last weekend, same exact thing. I don't remember anything. My brother remembers everything. I don't remember anything. And I was episode two. And this question was asked from Darren to me. And my early memory of pain was just my parents divorcing, I guess, but I don't even really remember that. But clearly, there was some pain there, Mm -hmm. whether I realize it or not. Like you said, I'm really interested as to why where's the block and why I can't remember that. So yeah.
2: Did you figure anything out yet?
3: I haven't, but I'm down for the journey and I'm down for the ride. And I know if I keep chipping away, I'll probably get a little bit of clarity on what was going down.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Have you done any kind of therapies that just sort of start releasing emotional blockages in the body that kind of, you don't always know exactly what it is, but there's some sort of like emotional, physical release?
3: The breath work. I hosted a retreat last month that Darren was at, and we had a, a guy come in and and do some pretty deep breath and sound. It was a full on hour and a half session, and it was a wild ride. It was the sharing circle at the end was more powerful to see what some of the attendees were going through, mm. but that breath work can I know it can break through some barriers for sure.
2: Mm. Yeah. 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 I've had some stuff come through doing that kind of stuff. Body work and breath, audible, audible breath. For sure.
3: Who would you say back in the day or childhood or your younger years was like your your first real teacher?
2: My dad. I mean, definitely my dad. You know, he was teaching me about racing for sure. You know, when people ask me about role models and idols and people like that, and who did I learn from? I didn't, I mean, there were people along the way that helped me and guided me. In fact, my whole life is a matter of guides, not really like role models or idols or anything like that. I never, I don't remember really, I didn't really have anybody that I wanted to be like. I just had people that I was sort of like skimming information from, you know, like learning things and taking little bits from everybody. So yeah, I just kind of took as I went, but the first one was dad for sure.
3: And what did your dad teach you about racing that actually was teaching you about life or that was teaching you something beyond the Mm. the technicalities of racing?
2: You know, probably the one that the analogy, the life lesson analogy that sticks and it's not, I mean, let's see. I don't think that he meant it in a metaphorical way. I don't think he was there. He's not there, you know, but when he would tell me when I was out on the track and, As when I was go-karting, if I like turned around to look and see what was behind me and how far away I was, he would get so angry at me. He was like, you go where your eyes go. So if you're looking back, that's where you're going. And I would say now I can take that as the metaphor. I see them. That's a very clear metaphor for me, but it's really, you know, true. It's where you put your attention is where you put your energy is where you put your, you know, it's an energetic thing. So if you're looking at, you know, how beautiful the artwork is, then the artwork's beautiful. You know, if you um, look at how bad the weather is, and that's like all you think about. So it's kind of like looking forward always, and also just in life, just generally looking forward, um, instead of backwards. And I don't think it's why, but I am definitely a future thinker. Like I think there's people generally go to one side or the other. You're either you either think about the future and you plan and you get attached to outcomes or you are someone who ruminates on the past, thinks about things that have happened a lot. And to me, that sort of like leads into the direction of like shame and guilt and regret and things like that. And so I'm a future thinker. So I get very attached to outcomes and I'm willing to work through a lot of unnecessary pain and really go against the grain just because I set a goal and want to achieve it. So yeah, but I definitely am a forward looker for sure. For sure. Like to to the point where I don't have regrets even. I know that's kind of like somebody would, there's some people that would probably say like, that doesn't sound right. Or maybe there's something wrong with that. Or like, what are you doing wrong with your life? But to me, it's a perception. Like, Regret include and would imply that I want to change something. That's how I think of regret is that I'd want to change something. And I don't want to change where I am today. Like I learned it all <laughs> through all the pain. And so and the lessons came through that. So I don't want to change anything. So therefore I don't have regret. Now I can be like bummed or disappointed with myself or like oh that sucked. But I don't look back with regret because I wouldn't change anything.
1: I love that quote. You go where your eyes are. I know somebody that's listening to this right now really needed to hear that. There's a lot of people out there trying to rewrite their story that are too busy looking back or looking all over the place instead of looking forward. And that's why we have amazing people like you here to you know tell people how you kind of got through some adverse time. So I want to take us to that place. What was the most adverse time in your life or the lowest moment that you could say of your life? What, what would that be for you?
2: Mm, I think that professionally, the lowest point was when I came back. So when I was living in England racing, I went over there from 16 to 19 years old. I left high school. And there was one point in time where I had come home, and the like word had gotten to managers that I was out and having too much fun, and maybe that's some of the reason why I wasn't doing better. And you know, that was like they came down on me pretty hard. And you know, was it true? Of course I was going out. I was like 16, 17 years old living in England by myself. Was I going out more than anyone else? No, definitely not. But that doesn't matter. Like it's all about kind of just giving someone a reason. Right. And I think especially in the world of athletics, that's like in business too, but we don't want to give anyone a reason to doubt us or a reason to like get out, you know? And so it was a reason. And when I went back to England after that, I had to live in a house with a family and he was super chauvinistic and horrible and the kids were like six, seven years old and they were kicking soccer balls in my door every morning at like 6 a.m. And I felt like it was just locked down. like I couldn't do anything. So, you know, that was probably like professionally kind of an interesting time and a lot of challenge. And I had to really be willing to endure the discomfort of, you know, being in a situation that wasn't fun, but I was still getting to race. So there was that. I would say otherwise professionally, you know, when my sponsor left in 2017, it definitely was a jolt. I had never had that kind of situation happen before. So then I had to deal with the concept of being done racing. And so, you know, the initial feeling of all that was... You know, at first I was like, oh, my God, I'm not ready to be done. And then it ended up being my last full year. So I kind of came around to it. But, you know, just like anything, any big changes, they're jolting at first. And then I would say personally, I think I've probably dealt with far more sadness and grief around relationships. I have such attachment to outcomes with relationships and my emotions. And so with work though, I'm not as much, I can allow things to go. I can let things go. I can start a project and if it doesn't work, then it didn't work or, you know, it can be going well. And my intention with anything has never been to make money because I know that when things go well, that just happens anyway. And so with work, I'm very disconnected from outcomes. And so it allows a lot more flow. But in relationships, I get really attached to the outcome. And, you know, I've learned a lot about my childhood, learned a lot about my relational dynamics with my mom and with my dad, and how that sort of plays into how I am in a relationship. But I've dealt with by far the most amount of sadness around relationships. And the last one that ended was definitely the most difficult, for sure,
1: by a lot. I can honestly relate personally to how you handle things differently when it comes to work and to relationships. You know, with yeah. work, I'm very like, trust the process, you know, yeah. even things are going to work out how they're supposed to be. But when it comes to relationships, you know, I've messed up a lot in relationships. I've been the one to break trust a lot in relationships. And so it's kind of like, I don't give myself that same patience. You know, my self kindness as far as relationships isn't necessarily there. And, you know, with work, it's like, I'm going to get through this, but with relationships, I'm like, man, I don't even know. And it's like, I try to look for that temporary release and it's just running in circles all over the place. But I want to ask mm-hmm. you in those stages of your uh, racing career, like when you were in that home and the kids were kicking the ball up against the door, you know, what were some of the earliest small victories that you had that helped turn that situation around and to help you start killing it on the track? Like we know you can.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, you know. W- I feel like I realized when I was happiest and having the most fun was when I performed the best and so like I remember at the end of my sort of time there or pretty close to it there was a big race and it was called the Formula Ford Festival and there was like 100 plus entries kids from I mean kids I mean you still had to be able to drive but we were young from all over Europe would come and the UK and it was a big big event and my mom was there i was having so much fun like i was waving to the corner workers every morning and the yellow shirts and nobody knows what that means but they work there and so i was waving and having such a good time and i finished really well there was a european race and then there was the festival race so there was two different ones in the week and i finished like fourth in the european race maybe and like second in the festival which is the best for Of course, a woman, but for an American ever in history. And so I saw this glimpse into when I'm happier, I do better. And so then when I came back to the States the next year in the spring, I realized just how much I like being home. And then I got a ride with Bobby Rahal and that ended up going well in Formula Atlantic. And then, you know, I did two years in that and then I was in IndyCars. So, you know, I think that just recognizing the dynamic of my own joy my own frequency my own energy really was effective in my performance and in my overall well-being mm. my well-being affected the performance
1: no absolutely i mean the amount of pressure that had to have been on you i know it, at times it may have been hard to find that joy and you know a lot of us in the world we need feel like we need to perform to get people to like us or to you know feel good about ourselves and really it's the opposite we feel good about ourselves, that performance comes after yeah. that. So that's just amazing to hear from you, from someone that's been so successful.
2: Yeah. Well, there's a great book called Mindset by Carol Dweck and you guys are nodding and see if you've heard it or you've read <laughs> it. And, you know, there, I was so fascinated to read the part in the book where, because it's for those who haven't read it, it's about a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And so, growth would be sort of orienting with the process more, and fixed would be outcomes. So, uh, I was fascinated to read the part where it's some people, if they grow up in a household where they are heavily rewarded when they're success only, they have a tendency to completely avoid an entire new challenge merely because they're so much more afraid of failing than they are anything else. And so they will refrain completely for fear of failure. And I was like, wow, that is like crazy how powerful those emotions and mind and perception are. And so growth mindset is critical for every aspect of life, period and that's what the book goes into it you know the book goes into relationships work boss employee kids it goes into all the facets and it's a great book it's a very good like baseline information about how mindset affects your life in different areas
3: so interesting a couple things you said one of them was that awareness of i like being home and knowing you a little bit and knowing how important like what that actually means to you today, being home, maybe home is where the heart is and doing those practices and getting out into nature and practicing meditation and moving your body and eating right. Where to me, when you have that awareness and that's what matters to you, I see you in the practices every single day to really come home, come home to the body.
2: Mm, so true. I mean, yeah, I like to say this. I say the Ram Dass- quote all the time, we're all just walking each other home, but it's like you're right. The home is really inside. And I believe that's where heaven and hell exists too. It's not somewhere you go. It's a state of being. It's your mind. I read another great book that Carter gave me called Awareness by Anthony DeMello. And all of a sudden it dawned on me like three quarters of the way through the book, I was sitting there, I was like, oh my God, the mind is the matrix. I was like, that is so right. It's literally the mind. Like We think we're going to escape or go to somewhere different. It's a state of being. It's your consciousness. It's your thoughts. It's your energy. It's your perception. And the mind is the matrix. And so, you know, once as a culture, we start to wrap our head around just how powerful the mind is, there'll be some real shifts. And I love that there's this whole like 10%, 1%, what is it? 1% theory, like 1% of... The population needs to elevate their frequency to affect all. There's some monkey thing that was done. It's like some thing where in the way back there was this test and like once a certain amount of monkeys learned how to do something just by the energy transferred to other monkeys in different places without them seeing anything. They just knew it. It became a new level of awareness. So, you know, isn't that the journey we're on, right? I think as spiritual or people that seek more than what is there and also question everything that is there. I mean, I think this is all leading to that destination of being those who help raise the whole frequency.
3: Yeah. It's like the the one degree shift, right? Like one degree, if we just changed our direction, one degree, we'll end up in in a completely different place or the The 1% better every day, which I believe that's James Clear talks about that, where if we got 1% better every day for a year, we'll be 37% better of a person, where if we got 1% worse, we'll be at rock bottom, basically. So what you're saying about the matrix and how the mind is the matrix, I've heard you even talk on another podcast about how the river cuts deeper and deeper. And the deeper Mm -hmm. it cuts, the harder it is to get out of. And when you're saying that, I'm like, that is the fixed mindset where there are people that the pathways are so deep and there isn't an openness, there isn't a willingness, there isn't any willing to learn or willing to grow. So they are fully in the matrix. And it's tough to watch, especially if we have family or people close to us we know that are in that. It often can create a little disconnection, which can be heartbreaking sometimes.
2: Well, All those answers are just trapped in the subconscious and the subconscious begins to be programmed from the last trimester of pregnancy until the first I've heard anywhere from six to eight years, essentially. And so, you know. Then, of course, you go to someone like me who doesn't really remember anything before 10. I'm like, I have no idea why I do what I do and act like I act, but it's trapped in there. And so it's like I interviewed Peter Crone and he gave the example like, you know, if you're born with blue lenses, like blue eyes, like bl- a blue lens for the world, what colors the world? And you're like, blue, but you don't know it's blue. Wow. And so that's kind of the way that the subconscious works with these sort of. Programming, this neuroplasticity, these wired and fired patterns that you have is you don't know them. You can't see them because it's you. And, you know, that's why when you start to recognize that everything in your reality, everything in your world is here to show you you, it like becomes so informational and autonomous in its information, right? And in its experience because we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. So when we see someone who is, you know, really lazy. Like this is always the excuse I give. I'm like, oh, they're lazy. It's like it's showing me me that I deny myself the lazy. Now, if you see somebody and you're like, oh wow, they're such a hard worker, and it's because I'm a hard worker because I don't see mm-hmm. things as they are. I see things as I am. Mm-hmm. And I always, especially for girls, I don't know, maybe guys do this too. But the example also is you might have a friend who might be like, oh, I don't like this feature about me, and you look at them and you're like, oh my god, like I never saw that. I didn't ever see that. And so, you know, knowing that like their perception is completely different than yours and you literally can't see the same thing and you see it completely different. Maybe you look at something, some feature about someone, and you're like, oh my God, are you kidding me? It's beautiful. You know, yeah, that's amazing. Um, we just can't see things as any other way than what we are. So life becomes very informational in a sort of like self way, an eye way.
3: Can we stay on the topic on mindset? And maybe I'll ask both of you guys this question. Like, what is the racing, let NFL? What would you say, what percent mental and what percent physical? And for you, Danica, maybe you can start off. And what is the mindset of mm-hmm. someone that, in a sense, was breaking through all these barriers?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the body follows the mind. I think there's some baseline level of strength or endurance or things like that. Just, and I would venture to say it might not actually matter. It's just that there's enough cultural programming to say, like, if you're really skinny, you're probably not going to have this sort of like inherent belief that you can do something that takes strength. So it's probably just sort of deeper rooted in the mind. But I think that I do believe at a fundamental level, the body follows the mind. That's why there are miraculous things that happen out in the world where somebody needs to flip a car over and they can to save their child or something like that, right? They do miraculous things that are unexplainable beyond the physical capacity that they normally have. And so I think that the body follows the mind for sure.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I would venture to say, you know, that football success in it is 90% mental uh, because I feel like, you know, I say 10% physical because everybody at that level has great ability. And it's kind of like that incredible. So the guys, like if everyone's super, no one will be. And so it's like, everyone's got that talent level. So what separates them? I think it's the mind. And, you know, Beth and I was using and had no love for myself whatsoever. I feel like my play reflected that. I was out there in my stance, like, all right, don't drop this, don't drop this. Like, don't mess this up. But when I take that time out to pour into myself, into my mind, into my spirit, now that translates out into the game where it's like that fear of failure isn't paralyzing me. It's like, I'm willing to go out there and and try something and risk being laughed at or somebody, you know, saying something in my comment section on Instagram, like that, those kind of things don't necessarily bother me anymore. It's more about, you know, finding the joy in it. Like Danica said, there's so many other things I can focus on, but instead, you know, I'm going to focus on this because I'm intentional and I practice it every day. So I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, We'll to say that the people that are successful separate themselves mentally from others.
2: Yeah. Well, it's when you put the hard work in that you generate confidence from that. When you know you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, that's something that you're doing. Exactly. You're not, that's not hard work. That's the opposite. So then, of course, then you go onto the field or you go into practice or you do whatever you're doing and you say like, oh, don't screw this up. Oh, don't be tired. Oh, whatever. And all you think, all your brain hears is, be tired. Screw up. Like, you know, these are negative affirmations. Even though you're trying to reframe it, it's coming from a negative place. And so, you know, that's why you've got to stand over the ball if you're playing golf or run and catch, you know, whether it's basketball or football or whatever it is. And you got to want the ball. You got to want that ball at the end of the game. You got to want it. You got to believe in yourself that much. And I believe that carries so much, it carries a lot of weight in the actual result of what's going on. So, you know, belief, belief is a really, really magical ingredient in everything.
3: I've heard you talk about a message that you give when you do talks, or you're giving a message to younger girls, and it has this idea of dreaming big, which I think ties into this belief or the story or the only story that matters is the one you tell yourself. And if you can believe in yourself, like that's where it all has to start.
2: Yeah. Well, when you set your goal, I mean, belief and a goal are kind of different, but if you set your goal really, really far out, it's like going into the gym and like deadlifting 450 or whatever you want to deadlift. I don't know. 250 is pretty damn light, you know, right? Like that's pretty attainable. Like your mind is like, oh, that's easy. And so it is. And then if you set a goal that's so, so far out halfway between that so, so far out and you is like, oh, well, yeah, of course I have to do that. Like I'm on my way, you know, like Duh, I'm going to do that. I have to. And so I think that that's how I look at those really lofty goals is that they sort of drag you, they drag you, to that result, or at least close to it, and you know, every now and again, exceed it. And so, if you don't set that lofty goal, then what are you going to do? If you go into the gym, and you're like, man, I just want to be able to curl ten pounds. Then you're selling yourself a little short.
1: Yeah, because you not set that lofty goal is uncomfortable. Uh, you know, we we'll, yeah. people, we don't want to be uncomfortable. We want the comfortable route. Like, let me achieve this right here because it's safe and. You know, people pat me on the back, but, you know, when you by yourself, it's not going to overwhelm you with gratitude and just like, you know, how you persevered unless you go for that goal that takes everything that you have and, you know, yeah. you won't have anything left in the tank. But it's hard for people to wrap our minds around the positive in that just because there's so much that it takes, so much that it requires of you to get to that place. And, you know, that's why we want people to see that. And we're glad to have you here today.
2: Yeah. Well, I think there's also, too, there's not only just setting the lofty goal of like, I oh, when I grew up, I want to win the Indy 500 and I want to do whatever, is that I think it's really healthy to have small incremental goals along the way to sort of keep you hooked, to keep you positive, to keep you in perspective. Because if the goal is to win the Indy 500, and that's all I ever thought about when I was racing go-karts at 12 years old, now that's pretty friggin far away, Right. But if I'm like, oh, well, I need to win at this and then I'll win this championship here and that will help me get a ride to that. And so, you know, I did this all throughout my career, especially later as I was like, okay, my goal is to qualify inside of this sort of area and then I want to have finishes inside of this. And, you know, hopefully halfway through the season, I can have X amount of top 10s or whatever it is or top 5s and those those were the kind of things that I had to do along the way to stay positive because the lofty goal it should be so lofty that you really have a hard time attaining it right um, otherwise you're selling yourself short Straight
3: up. yeah i would just add also to the goal conversation that i see a lot of people that set goals and don't achieve them and well two reasons maybe they haven't systematically or structurally cleared or released anything to make way for these goals. And then the other piece is knowing your values first, because you have to know your values, you have to know what matters, you got to know the bedrock of who you are to set those goals. A lot of people set goals, and they're really for somebody else. Maybe they're for what society says needs to be in place to be successful or what our parents said. So I think it comes back to values and values are so important. I think in coaching. It just feels like everything always comes back to those where your values can be a filter system for every decision that you ever make, including the goals, but also even setting boundaries. Because when you know who you are, you know who you're not and what you're not going to allow into your space that can get in the way of getting to those goals.
2: Mm, Yeah, yeah, well said. And boundaries. Isn't that a really powerful one? I mean... Damn, there needs to be like literally a class in school on boundaries because I never had any. And then when I thought about boundaries, I always thought they were for someone else, which meant I never had them because it's like, don't cheat on me. Don't do that. Oh, you know, and then you're living by their boundaries, too. And boundaries are really for you. Like they're personal. I will only go this far. I will do this. I'm going to do that. And when it goes past a certain point, then you speak up like boundaries are, for someone that's a little on the codependent side, boundaries are like, Oh, what's that?
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it is so important. And once again, a very common theme and topic that comes up around any kind of coaching. And I think I struggled with this because I felt bad for placing boundaries. And, but boundaries actually aren't a, about placing limitations on other people. It's about what you will and what you won't allow into your space. And exactly. so this empowerment, and I even call it the empowered no, when you're able to say no, or at least be able to clearly communicate from love as to why. And it's just simply the impact this behavior is having on me is this right? So you make it about you and not about them. And maybe the person that you're setting that boundary with won't take it as personally.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you guys have boundary issues?
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. I was was a people pleaser. So boundaries didn't exist to me because I was like, you know, I got to do whatever I can to impress you. So I'm not going to block my path in doing that. But at the same time, I'm compromising so much, you know, like my own energy. Like, I didn't realize how much I was giving that away just so you could feel good about me. Like, I had to myself to such great lengths that I look back now and I'm like, you know, that's not anything I'm remotely interested in or anything that I would stand for today. But it's like when you're in that space of needing validation, it's like, you know, those boundaries literally are not a tool for you because you're not really protecting yourself. You're protecting that other person, really.
2: Right. And, you know, the professional boundaries lead to burnout and the personal boundaries lead to, I think what feels the most, I feel around this a lot, which is when you don't have them, how do you know who someone is? And like, how do you know them? If they just do whatever kind of makes you happy or like, you know, adapts to everything, doesn't stand their ground, like you don't you're not allowing someone to truly know you. And then why would it be shocking that someone wouldn't be that interested at some point in time because they don't freaking know you. Mm. And I feel a lot of energy around that being one of the really big problems about not having boundaries is that you think it's going to make them happy and make them like you more. But in fact, it's less of you. So they just like you less because it's less of Mm. you.
3: Yeah and the words or the quote I love around boundaries is we teach people how to treat us which again it comes back to values because if you know who you are and you make every decision from those values then you don't really give a shit what anybody else thinks and so sometimes giving that empowered no and drawing that line in the sand on saying this is what it's acceptable and this is what isn't there's so much strength and empowerment that can come from that otherwise you're right like we just are teaching people how to treat us. And people are either going to step on your boundaries or step on your values because they don't care, or they don't know what they are, or they just don't respect them. But when we communicate those based on our values, then that's the bedrock of who we are, right? So if we know who we are, self-sabotage, which that's a whole nother topic we can get into, if you'd like, that that self-sabotage doesn't come creeping in, which a lot of it comes from desire and acceptance and that's a lot of times where the boundaries can get crossed.
2: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get into the self-sabotage stuff. I don't feel like that was kind of my zone, but definitely abandoning myself for someone was a big problem. And yeah, it's such a journey to learn all these dynamics and how they play into life, but like you said, when you know who you are, that's what I want to ask about it and talk about because those are simple words, know who you are. And I would say there's probably most everyone, if you're like, do you know who you are? And you'd be like, yeah. like, But do you really? Do you really? It's really freaking hard to know who you are, I think, personally. When I lived in North Carolina, I lived there for like five years, and I had never really lived in the middle of nowhere like that before. And I learned a lot about myself because I had a lot of time. And I was like, wow, I'm learning so much about me that I didn't realize. And I think these are the things that make it hard to not know who you are. You work a lot. You have a relationship that you're in. You have kids. You have a lot of activities. You hang out with a lot of people. What you really need, which is most everybody, right? What you really need is alone time because you got to start living your days going, okay, what would I do if I could do anything today? And answering that question is not the easiest thing, especially when you try and string a bunch of time together of going like, okay, now what would I do? Like you can just chill out and go work out or watch a movie like, whatever, you can do some simple stuff, go, okay, that was a day. But what happens when it's the fifth day in a row that you have nothing to do? And you're like, okay, now what am I gonna do? Right. And all of a sudden you start going, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of interested in painting, I think. Like, I'm going to go down to Joanne Fabrics and go get some supplies and just start to, like, mess around. Or all of a sudden you're like, oh, you know what? I realize, like, I really love to read. I'm really interested in learning. And all of a sudden you start picking up a book. Like, you need time to figure those things out. And I think that truly knowing who you are is... Well, I think that there's some parallel happening between knowing who you are and boundaries. Because once you know who you are, you know what you're willing to put up with and be around. And so, yeah, but knowing who you are truly is challenging because it's also evolutionary. And when someone says you've changed, like, that's a great compliment, especially if you're putting effort into it, because, you know, assuming that it's like, you've changed, like, oh, you got fired from your job, you don't take care of yourself. I mean, that's not the good you've changed. But the other kind of you've changed is what you're working towards. And it's only going to make people uncomfortable that want the old you. It
3: comes back to that whole growth mindset where change isn't part of the process. It is the process. It's like life is always changing, always going. And when we're fixed, we dig our heels in the ground, especially if you look at like this last year, And there's a whole other thing with values is values actually allow us to find common ground with people that we don't see eye to eye with, because we can just see we just value something different than they do. So as this last year, just taking a step back and seeing all the different beliefs, whatever was going on, there's so much stuff to sit back and say, well, if these people knew who they were, they wouldn't have to try to project it onto everybody else trying to convince them. So mm-hmm. I kind of got sidetracked because it came back to values again about just the ability to find common ground. That person just values something different than I do, which allows you to set a boundary. Like I don't need to hang with them if you don't
2: want to. Right. Absolutely. Wow.
3: Darren, how yeah, do boundaries work for you these days?
1: Um. Yeah. I mean, I feel like with relationships I have to, be willing to be on my own. Like Danica said, I feel like Danica's just like preaching to me right now, like, like, like straight at me. But yeah, I have to in order to, you know, really find out who I am. Cause if I'm not bringing like a whole single person to a relationship, like then that's, that's compromising the relationship out of the gate because I'm still holding on to insecurities or you know limiting beliefs over myself so i do have to invest in that alone time even though i do feel lonely and I feel like men in my position are taught you know that they can have anyone that they want or be with anyone that they want and it's like still battling beliefs of that and so taking this time to create boundaries for myself is allowing me to be the man that i want to be in the future because when i want to have a family and settle down you know i can't take those similar mindsets or those or this you know not like a like a bad predator but like a you know in, imposing my will mindset into a family relationship or something like that you know i have to be willing to i have to be able to be content and that's something that i have to grow into and you know sometimes i do like at this moment i'm not seeing anyone not dating anyone not doing any of that and you know i get that lonely feeling but i'm starting to see the purpose in it and the value in spending that time and knowing that it's working towards a greater goal and i don't have to give into the temporary pleasure, you know, I can continue to build that integrity up that hasn't been there before. So that's what boundaries are doing for me right now. I'm just, I'm grateful that I'm being able to see things that way. You know, all these experiences that we've all been through, it's like, you know, we're grateful for all of it. Like we wouldn't change any of it because we got here for a specific reason. So Dan, if I want to ask you, what do you think you're most grateful for today?
2: Mm. Um. First, I wanted to ask because uh, you were talking about you know like a fix or something, and I think it's to be said that men and women there's some different stuff, right? Like guys, I feel like there's like some macho ness, right? There's some like cool factor to like yeah. you know, girl a date hooking up, whatever <laughs> it is. Like, right. You know, I think there's a difference, you know. And I'm wondering if there's if that's sort of the ego, right, creeping in even though it's not how you feel truly you or just you need a little ego kick. Right. And, you know, I love the saying that the ego is impatient because it knows it's time is limited, but the soul is patient because it knows it has forever. And, you know, the soul is so much more subtle and quiet and nuanced, but it gives you all the answers. And how many times can you look back on your life and go like, I knew it. I knew it. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty much all of them. And so anyway, yeah, I think what a good practice, though, to spend that time on your own to really learn it. And also that the more that you love yourself, the more someone can love you, right? It's almost like you look at yourself like as if there's sort of something filling up and as the love like fills up more and more and more, it's going to be reciprocated on the other side with someone similar, like attracts like, and also you're going to be able to hear it and see it because the more you love yourself, when someone tells you something nice, you're going to hear it. If you don't believe it about yourself, then if somebody says, oh, Dan, if you look pretty, and I'm like, eh, whatever, I don't hear them, because I don't think I look pretty. Right? So it's kind of like, I'm using like a, a total arbitrary e- example. But, you know, the more you love yourself, the more you're not only teaching them how to love you, but the more you can accept it and hear it. Because there's so many times I think in relationships where somebody's like, I've been telling you that, you know, you don't hear it because you don't believe it. Again, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. So when our heart opens and expands, we can feel it from someone else then too. Um, wow. And I, Sorry, I run off on a tangent, but I had some thoughts in my head about what you were saying. Um, and um, so what did you, what'd you ask again?
1: <laughs> oh, no, I was just saying like, you know, even through all these experiences, even listening to you today, you know, I'm just like grateful for that everything has happened the way that it has. Otherwise I wouldn't be where I am today. So I just want to ask mm. you what, do you think you're most grateful for
2: today? Mm, um, Yes, thank you. Um, I am most grateful for, uh, you know, I think that if I can boil it way down, because I could say family, friendships, relationships, you know, the means that I have for the life that I have, the blah, 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 blah. But really, really what it comes down to And I feel like I've tapped into one of the most important aspects of this dynamic being in personal relationships is accountability because accountability plays into work. It plays into relationships, everything. It's an inside job. And so once I finally came around to really realizing how uh, seeing my part in things, it doesn't mean that people aren't. Wrong, right? It doesn't mean that you are right. Like, it's not really a pointing fingers game. Like, there's things that happen in life. But as I've taken accountability for myself in my life, and I've done it in a lot of ways for a long time, but in more ways now, I start to really shift my life overall because I've always been very accountable when it comes to work, but in relationships, a little less maybe. But even at work, too, it's shown up everywhere. It's just those are kind of more of the dynamics for me. But accountability. That's it. Uh, Honestly, I'm most grateful for the ability to be accountable because it's very powerful when you start to take accountability for your life. I have a saying, and it's really simple, which is your life is all your fault. And you're like, Oh, and then you're like, Hmm, but then I did all this stuff too. And that's my fault too. And you're like, wow, it's just reminding you how powerful you are and how, yeah, it's a mirror. It's an inside job.
3: Well, I'm grateful for your answer of accountability. I do a gratitude list every day, and I don't think I've ever written accountability as something that I'm grateful for. But as you're saying it, I'm like, I got the chills just thinking about it from the level of accountability and how that saved my ass in many, many ways. And me and Darren come from the world of recovery, and you talked about ownership. And in the steps, there is a step where even when we're looking at resentments and you know all the resentments we've had towards other people, places and things and looking at our part. But even like I have a men's group and our men's group are reading uh, the four agreements. Darren was there when he was in town and it's guys that are also in recovery, but we're also diving into other literature and just that accountability every week. And for guys that I know will have my back no matter what, but will also call me out on my bullshit. It's everything. Without accountability, I know I won't follow through, I'll fall into ruts, and I'll end up getting more of what I don't want. And so with that accountability, I mean, you just nailed it. And that just brings up a whole hell of a lot of gratitude, even on your quote, your life is your fault. And I look at what's happening in this moment right now, and just talking to two other amazing humans, which I knew this would be very, very little about race car driving, or about sports, and it would be way deeper, way more meaningful. But to think that your life is your fault. And if I think back at my rock bottom, in my addiction, and how much of a disaster it was, mm-hmm. and it was my fault, mm-hmm. but I can look at today, and attaching a different meaning to that and seeing like, even in this moment, I can get emotional even just talking about it, that it, it is still all my fault. And it's all from every choice I've ever made.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's that accountability is just a really powerful thing because you can have great friends around you, too, which is great to hold yourself accountable to be with people that are being going to be honest with you. So that is an aspect. But if they tell you to do something, but you're not willing to take accountability for it, it doesn't matter. So it all boils down to ownership and accountability and your effort and uh, willingness. And then, of course, the belief like there has to be this sort of inertia of it right? And then there's the the rooting, which is the belief, uh, which essentially is the drawing in of that thing that you want is the belief. Yeah. Accountability and belief, really powerful. What would you say to maybe somebody that knows they're the biggest
3: thing holding them back, they know they're struggling, they're stuck, but what kind of advice, what would you offer to that person to get them to shift or get them unstuck?
2: Mm. Well, I would say that if you can recognize within yourself that you are up against a roadblock and that you're stuck and that you're not happy and you can see that about yourself and you feel that, you're already very much Most of the way there. I think we all, in general, people tend to operate like zombies their whole life and they don't recognize their part in anything and life is just happening to them. And, you know, they blame, this is kind of where the victim comes in, Mm -hmm. where, you know, I see this, you know, all the time, whether it's on social media or whatever, you know, you see people's comments and like, oh, it must be nice to be able to go do that and do this. And, you know, people are home right now and it's like, I don't know. Get off your ass, do some, Like my parents spent their last hundred dollars on a picnic table when they got married, and like they started from nothing, and they were able to, you know, generate success, and then that sort of had a downward waterfall effect to my sister and I. But you know, there's a lot of victimhood, I think, which it's easy to spin in that victimhood a lot because it takes the earnest off of you, and it's uh, the opposite of accountability. Mm-hmm. So. I would say that you're most of the way there. I would let them know that. That's really important that you can actually see it instead of being the zombie that just continues to blame and be the victim. And then I would say that, you know, there's one way to reprogram. It's the slowest way, but it's the easiest way. I know that sounds a bit silly, but it's through repetition. So if you know you're stuck and you want to change something, get on to listen to podcasts, watch YouTube videos, pick up a book, whatever it is, and just start consuming information around whatever it is that you want to change. And through enough time, this is back to the sort of like neuroplasticity and those like deep ingrained thoughts and those wiring and firings that happen in your life where, you know, some of them you aren't aware and some of them you make stronger through your habits, but you start to wire and fire new neural pathways, And then the old ones dissolve essentially and aren't a part of your reality anymore. And so I would say start to consume a lot of information about what it is that you want and allow that repetition to reprogram you. And it will happen. And also probably in the process, I would say that if you want anything that is different than you have and is in any way, lofty or aspirational, it's going to be hard. Period. Like, I don't mean like, oh yeah, that's a bum, but I mean like, I'm really uncomfortable right now. I am yearning to do this thing or get this thing or go here or call this person or take that or do this. Like it should feel uncomfortable because you are in a hormonal addictive loop to something. So whatever it is that you don't want anymore that you're trying to get rid of, your body is really good at asking for it. And it loves repetition because that makes you able to fight off the lion that's coming at you because you can conserve all your energy and be on autopilot. It just likes repetition. So it's essentially like an addiction. So it doesn't actually even have to be a physical addiction to drugs or alcohol. This can be an addiction to codependency. This can be an addiction to, you know, getting self gratification outside of you from someone else or something else. This addiction can come in so many different forms, but it's really about the hormone loop that ends up happening. So I'd say that right at that point where you're really uncomfortable is where the real shift happens. And if you haven't got there and if you haven't broken down, then you're not there yet
1: wow that's hey that's what that's what comeback stories are all about honestly um getting yourself to that level of uncomfortability and knowing that you know it's going to be hard it's not going to feel good it's not going to feel like anything that it's not going to be anything that you expected it to be it's going to be the complete opposite and but that's that's the what makes it so beautiful and before we wrap this up we love to know acknowledge the people in our stories that have helped us so much that helped us up. And, you know, we feel like we couldn't even hold ourselves up. If you could give a comeback story, shout out to somebody. If you could give it to one person, uh, who would that Mm. be?
2: Mm. (sighs) Man, I'd have to give it to like my mom and dad and sister, like just my family. I mean, I'm willing to take the truth. So, you know, there's certain times in my, my life where I've maybe like avoided the truth on at some points in time to them, because I'm like, Shit, they're gonna hold me really accountable, but they're always a soft place to land, and so I'm super grateful for my family no matter what we've gone through. And like my sister and I have gone through stuff, and like older in our past, and you know, my mom and dad and I sure have. Um, but they're always a soft place to land, and there is an unconditional love that is um, really special, and so. I mean, I have a lot of really amazing friends, but obviously my mom and dad and my sister have have really been there through it. And so... Yeah, I, I got to give it to them. I've got a good family and I've got really good friends and I'm really grateful for that. And I would say that, you know, this is probably why groups work, right? Is that we do well in community. We're meant to be in community. That's what makes all this stuff that's going on these days with the world today so friggin' sad is that we're meant to be together. We're meant to be in community. And this breaks down the human spirit in a way that we don't need because it's already difficult enough. And fear and anxiety is a real thing, and it's really, really bad for you. And so I would say that, you know, it shows me just how important it is that you have a community. And if you don't, then you just need to take a hard look at that. You know, if you don't have people that are willing to show up for you, it's going to be a little bit of a reflection of you not showing up for yourself, probably, but also that you might just need some new friends. And, you know, I've been super grateful for mine and it's reciprocal, right? I mean, I think that, you know, I was on a walk a, a couple months ago with some friends and I asked, like, have everyone chime in about what the most important thing they've learned in life is. And, and someone said how important it is to give back to your friends, even when it's not convenient sometimes. And so, you know, that is us putting in the effort and nurturing and nourishing our relationships. And so I think that that's a, a good lesson. And, you know, it's a good reminder of your group and your tribe. And sometimes just like your own personal growth, it's not always e- com- convenient or comfortable, but it's necessary for the long haul. And it's about the long game, right? Right. Again, back to the soul as opposed to the ego. The ego is going to be that one that's really aggressive and wants something to happen really quickly. And it's just an impatient little bad boy inside or bad girl. And it's to listen to that soft voice. And the best way to learn how to hear that soft voice, call it the soul, inner child, source, God, whatever you want to call it. It comes through a subtle intimate relationship through being alone and hearing it. I think that's why meditation ends up becoming so powerful because all of a sudden you start to kind of hear things or repetitious sort of phrases and you're like, what's that? And then you end up realizing that it's sort of your inner guidance and, and that soft soul is, uh, yeah, the soul is soft, but it's always in love and always in service.
3: I'm not sure who, who the quote is by, but it's all of man's troubles, or I guess all of human's troubles comes from the inability to sit in the room alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that sitting in the silence and, and listening to the inner voice, um, so powerful. And I just want to acknowledge you. I'm fascinated by this person whose success was really determined by um, how fast they could go and who would be the fastest to cross the finish line. But yet you're so committed. these practices actually of slowing down and really living this intentional life, knowing that there actually is no finish line, that you are playing the long game. So I just resonate so much and I'm inspired by people that are in the work. And it's so clear just through your clarity and your words and your um, commitment to stay in the work why this is so inspirational, I think you're going to touch a lot of hearts that maybe haven't connected with you yet. So
2: Mm, big
3: love, big love to you you for uh, saying yes.
2: Thank you. Well, you know, I've listened to a lot of Dolores Cannon in my days. And for anyone who hasn't heard of her, she's great. You can find her on YouTube. She's dead now in the video. She's like 80. And she talks about how in life, you know, we show up for these lessons. And if we don't learn them, then we come back again and do it over. And so in the back of my mind, I'm always like, oh, I don't want to learn this one over again. I do not want to have to go through all that I've gone through to get to this point again. I'm learning the lesson. I'm moving forward. Um, so if ever I get a little lazy for a second, I'm like, no, just, just do it. Just, just show up and learn the lesson so I don't have to come back and do that one again.
3: Amazing. Well, thank you for jumping on with us. I'm taking away a lot. I've got a, a sheet full of notes and I'm sure I'll be re-listening this a couple times. So again, we know your time is valuable, but it's been a blessing and an honor to uh, have you on with us, Danica.
2: No problem. That was really fun. I, I love the deep dive. So this is my jam.
1: All right, everybody. We're thank out. You. Thank you. What I represent, staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned.